0: Good morning, church family. Well, it's fall, and any of you in the house have a schedule as crazy as mine? Some of you? Football's good, but it's not that good. Monday night, Friday night, cross-country, all these things are fantastic things, but uh, definitely on the busy side. Well, thank you for prioritizing coming today. Uh, understanding there's value in the gathering of believers. Um, we are in part number six, six, number six of our seven-part series. Uh, essentially, you see it on the banners, uh, God's design for us, who we are. And our hope in covering these things is to be an encouragement to you. Uh, for those who have been a part of the woodwork of Open Door a really long time, our hope is that as we cover these uh, core values of who we are, you can quickly relate to them. You can be encouraged, knowing that some things are not changing, and uh, we hope that you will actually not just relate, but you'll advocate for them years, years down the road. Uh, so Open Door continues to be faithful to the Lord for years to come. Uh, but for those of you who are newer, um, we're hoping to share God's design for this church family so that you know what you're being a part of, uh, what you're committing your Sundays to, what you're committing your other six days to, to be part of the Open Door Church family. And if there's something in your spirit that says, yes, this is right, this is according to God's word, we encourage you to move beyond just attending our Sunday mornings and into the church family into our adult Bible fellowships, into home groups, into relationships. So definitely want to encourage you to take those next steps spiritually. So five weeks ago, Pastor Sid got us started on our core values. Just a little bit, run down memory lane. The first three he covered fall under the bracket of speaking God's truth. Started off with the Word of God. We believe the Word of God is inspired or inerrant and fully authoritative. So we're hoping that as you're around Open Door, you get this sense that when people teach, they're not the authority. God's word is the authority. Okay? Number two, the gospel. We we want to keep it clear and simple. We believe that Christ died for our sins and he rose again, and that one must trust in him alone to have eternal life. And so we want to keep the gospel super clear. Uh, Pastor Sid went to 1 Corinthians 15. If you ask the world over what the gospel is, people are as clear as mud. But Paul didn't make it uh, clear as mud. He made it very simple and clear. Christ died for our sins, and he rose again. Number three, the church. We place a high value on meeting weekly for the teaching of God's word, for the encouragement, and for worship together. There's something really spiritually special about coming together, lifting up your voices, hearing God's word taught, and building relationships. So we do place a high value and come together on a regular basis. So if you ever feel a nudge from me or one of the pastors of, we just haven't seen you, we realize for spiritual growth, it needs to happen in community and on a regular basis. All right, the second category, second grouping we had that Pastor said covered was living by God's grace. We seek to worship and obey the Lord motivated by gratitude for his love for us. So, we don't desire to be a church that nitpicks each other, but that we understand God's grace for us, and then we extend that same grace to others in the church family. And then last week, he clumped these two together, talking about we seek to foster a family like atmosphere. It does not mean that if you came in the room as a single person, you didn't come in with a family. It's saying, is that you're my brother, you're my sister. You're my family. And so we do what's best for family. We do what's best for church family. And then the last one he covered was authenticity. Um, and he used a phrase. It says here, we value humility and transparency as we grow in our faith. But Sid used a phrase, nothing to prove, nothing to hide. And so he challenged us, yes, we're encouraging each other to grow in our faith, to grow in obedience. But... The atmosphere here is you don't need to bring your A-game to come to church. You don't need to bring your A-game a game to be in a home group with somebody. You just come where you're at, and God works in our lives in the community of it. Which is going to take us to our third area. Today we're going to be talking about growing God's kingdom. Uh, Nathan, next week, will be taking us to the home stretch And uh, Pastor Sid is out looking at leaves. Uh, Don't tell him this, but he didn't have to go out east to see pretty leaves. You just have to go to, like, Newburgh. I mean, so he went out east. We went to Newburgh, right? But we're going to talk about growing God's kingdom. And specifically, you can see in the outline, you want to advance that one, John? Uh, You can see in the outline we're going to be talking about evangelism. Evangelism, this is our core value. We seek to share the gospel locally and globally, equipping each other to share our faith personally. Now, I hope when you saw evangelism and then you saw Seth speaking, you were like, oh, crud. Honey, get back in the car, right? Um, Really, if you can just, I'm going to just hopefully encourage you to relax a little bit. If you look at the very bottom of your outline, I gave you kind of a working definition of what we're going to talk about today. Evangelism, it's when we prayerfully depend on God to use our actions and our speech to help people trust in Christ as their Savior. A little bit different than what you might have thought, uh, because it really is just telling people what the Lord has done in your life. Uh, If you've had your sins forgiven, uh, you're free. And when you're free, you love the one who made you free. And when you love the one who made you free, evangelism is just telling people, what he's done in your life. So we know that Christ told us in Matthew 28 that we're to go into all the world, uh, preaching the gospel, making disciples. Um, But it's not that we have to. It's actually that we get to. We get to tell others. But when I bring up this word evangelism, a lot of us will turn right into some type of mechanical method, some type of training we received at one time, or some type of program that we want to lean on. And evangelism is not that, because oftentimes when we do that, it feels very mechanical and feels very inauthentic. Um, it's really just telling what the Lord has done in our life. Now, in an effort to evangelize, uh, some of our church family have gone across the globe to evangelize. We call them We call them missionaries. We've got people from our church family who have left Ozaki County to go to another part of the world to bring the good news of Jesus and we help fund and support what they're doing, investing in what they're doing for God's glory. Some of you have evangelized with friends and family and you've had the joy of somebody in your life coming to faith in Christ and you saw them change by the power of the gospel. And if you have, that is a tremendous blessing. It, it encourages you and inspires you to keep going. Some of you have shared the gospel, and it got awkward. Some of you shared with friends or family, and you don't know how to pick up the pieces after you shared because it's got, it got awkward. And when I mention evangelism, some of you kind of feel shame because it's been so long since you have shared what the Lord has done for you. Well, that tells you the gamut, but I know this. In light of Scripture... In a light of our core values, this is how we believe evangelism needs to be done. First, it needs to be according to the scriptures. So, not some fancy, schmancy, uh, persuasive, whatever. It needs to be according to the scriptures. Number two, it needs to be reliant on the gospel. Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God and His salvation. So, it doesn't, you don't have to be like, super persuasive or anything like that. It needs to be reliant upon the gospel. Number three, it needs to be promoted by the church. So when we come together and you get in groups and they say, okay, time to pray. Hey, we got some things to pray about. Is your first response praying for your ailment or somebody in your life who needs to know Jesus? I encourage you, if you're in our adult Bible fellowships today, start thinking right now, who in your world needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ? Number four, it needs to be um, uh, powered by grace, meaning people who feel guilty because they don't share either feel pressured and it comes out or they actually are paralyzed by that pressure. And then the second to last one is family. There needs to be an authentic family-like love when we share the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us. And the reason I say not some type of program because it feels very non-authentic. It feels very mechanical. So as we're talking about the gospel and sharing it with evangelism, it needs to be really founded on God's word. So quick poll in the room. How many of you have come to faith in Christ because somebody told you? Put them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Look around. Okay. Now, I'm willing to bet... You can put them back down now. (laughs) I'm willing to bet that some of the people who shared the good news of Jesus with you were terrible at doing it. They were nervous. They were praying. But somehow, God cracked through your skull with the truth of the gospel, and you believed. Are you thankful? However awkward or however challenged they were, are you thankful they shared the good news of Jesus with you? Answer? All right. Well, that is evangelism. And somebody telling you what the Lord did in their life is evangelism. That is God's plan. A, B, C, D, down to Z for how you can come to faith in Christ. So whether you're good or bad at sharing with it, sharing it, aren't you glad somebody did? So today, this is not going to be a guilt trip. I'm not going to guilt trip anybody. Uh, This is not going to be uh, uh, me challenging introverted people to not be introverted. Don't worry about that. It's not going to be deeply technical. It's not complicated. It's just what are some things to keep in mind as we talk about the person that we love and what he's done for us. And we want to foster an attitude of grace as we talk about sharing the gospel or evangelizing. So, that being said today, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4, if you guys want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to see how all of us can engage sharing the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for us. And then I'm going to leave you with a picture, hopefully uh, the last 10 minutes or so, I'm going to give you a, a picture of what this is like according to the scripture. Now, before we just drop down into verse 2 of chapter 4, i want to give you a little background. Uh Colossians was written by Paul to Colossae. Colossae is a town in modern-day Turkey. And the church that he was writing to seems to have been a blend of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians because they had brought their baggage into the church and they brought Jewish baggage and they brought Gentile baggage, okay? And Epaphras, who seems to be the pastor or that local shepherd travels to go see Paul to talk about some local false doctrine or false teaching that he was dealing with. So, so far in the book of Colossians, Paul addressed this really unusual teaching, but it's the foundation of our Christian faith that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man without sin, and he, his mysterious death on the cross and how it paid for our sins. Paul wanted to make it very clear that it's, yes, he's fully God, fully man, paid for our sins on the cross. He also covers in chapter 2 our sanctification, the need to grow up in our salvation, our freedom in Christ, living out our new identity, and he ends chapter 3 with order for the Christian family, this new family discovered in Christ as people come to faith in Jesus. How do we live this out in the context of our families? And then we're going to look at verses 2 through 6 as the final message of Paul to Colossi before he gives his greetings. And we're going to see how do we cultivate evangelism in our lives. So let me pray asking the Lord. We're just going to look at these four verses here, for verses 2, two to 6. And we're going to see what is it that God has in store for us today. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for uh, your work through Paul, uh, giving us insight on sharing what you've done for us. I pray today that you would help some of my friends here to get unstuck and talking about what you've done for them. I pray that they would be motivated by grace and they would find freedom and joy in talking about you wherever they go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read it. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 2. It says this. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So you guys can see right in your outline. We're going to pick it up in verse 2 that in order to cultivate evangelism, we need to devote ourselves to prayer, to being watchful, and to being thankful. Now, we have a problem in our culture. Um, We have a problem that I would actually call a lottery mentality. We think people get lucky. Whenever we see somebody do something that's extraordinary we tend to think they had the Michael Jordan effect. They just got lucky. We really think it's a lottery effect. But what I have found is that most things are accomplished through priorities. That doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Most things are accomplished through priorities. Quick quiz in the room. If you want to buy something big, what do you need to prioritize? Saving, yeah. Yeah. How about this? If you want to earn a degree, you have to prioritize studying. If you want to master an instrument, you have to prioritize practicing. All right. If you want to lose weight, you have to prioritize. (laughs) It's like if you're before 30 or 40, it's exercise. After 30, it's cut off the food, right? If you want to build a friendship, you have to prioritize or devote yourself to time. Time. If you want to build a house, you have to prioritize—I see none of you have ever built a house. Work. You have to prioritize work each day. What we're really devoted to really shows. Whether you're devoted to meals, whether you're devoted to TV, whether you're devoted to the news, your CNN or your Fox, your sleep, your work, your sports, it shows. And in themselves, I don't think any of these things I've mentioned are bad, but they don't help you share the gospel of Jesus. The text says, be devoted to these three priorities, and they will help you cultivate a heart for the lost. The phrase devote means to continue earnestly. It's actually a holding it as part of your life, hold fast. And he says here in verse 2, devote yourself earnestly to prayer. What's prayer? Oh, honey, he's going to talk about evangelism and now it's going to be talking about prayer. Prayer is really expressing our dependence upon God. Just don't complicate it. It's us talking to God expressing our dependence upon him. And most of us would admit that we're not super devoted to prayer. There might be some of you that are, but most of us would admit not super devoted. But what are we really saying when we say that we're not devoted to God in prayer? We're really saying, I'm not committed to depending on God. And when we don't commit to God in prayer and we practice independence, when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus, we resort to some mechanical way of talking, and it's weird. That's why evangelism gets weird. So he tells us to commit ourselves or devote ourselves to prayer because without prayer, it gets weird, and then we stop doing it. Now, upstream of our faith is prayer. And when we're devoted to prayer, we then can be, like what he says in the text, be watchful. Now, when you pray and then you watch, what are you watching? You're watching what you're praying for to see how God is at work. There are so many times in my life that I pray about something and I'm not watchful. And then what do I do? I miss out on what God's actually doing. So he says to us, we should be praying and then watching what God is doing, embracing things like I'm trusting God for. Embracing things of of not yet or but God. And while we're watching with anticipation that God will answer prayer, we stay committed to prayer, watchfulness, and thankfulness. Thankfulness is an act of the will, of the choice. There will always be something to get you down. I have just found that to be true in each and every season. There is something to drag me down. And really, thankfulness is rooted and established in establishing this our God is good, He's in control. And what's coming across my plate came across his hands first. Our God is good. He's in control. And what's coming across my plate came across his hands first. So we are called to be committed to his spiritual priorities of prayer, watchfulness, and thankfulness. And as we're thankful, we can be open-handed to receive what God has in store for us. The second point you'll see in your outline there is pray that the door will be open for the message... He continues to say in verse 3, And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. Who opens the door of opportunity for sharing the gospel? Did I hear anybody? The text says God does. Take the pressure off. When you think of evangelism, do you think about pushing doors open? And convincing people? If you do, that's probably why you don't share. The text says God's the one that opens the doors. And that this is not the good news of Seth. It's the good news of of God, of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So Jesus made that pretty strong claim in John 6 that unless the Father draws somebody, nobody can come to me. So I encourage you to do actually and walk in this way when I approach circumstances I pray and I ask the Lord to open a door and when he does spiritual things get brought up I have found that as I've prayed and asked the Lord to open a door that I then wasn't ready and I wasn't watchful and then spiritual things get brought up and then I'm like oh Seth you're such an idiot you missed it and then the conversation keeps rolling and then it gets brought up again And then I'm still not ready. There's times, it's been three and four times, that I realize that actually the Lord is working and my job is just to respond in faith and share what Jesus has done in my life when he's working. There are other times that I've prayed and asked the Lord to work and I actually stepped forward trying to insert and I just couldn't get the words out. How many of you guys feel that way at times? like you were just praying that family get-together, spiritual things we brought up, and it just never happened. And the temptation is to walk away feeling like a failure. What if God didn't open the door? I'd encourage you, do not leave those family get-togethers coming up next month feeling like a spiritual loser. If you're praying and asking God to open a door and the door does not open, we are to continue to pray that God continues to work. And do not let the devil accuse you of being a spiritual failure, but go back to dependence and prayer. Uh, One of the things as I study this passage this week is, I am so surprised at how radically dependent on prayer evangelism is. It is not being a bulldozer at your family get-togethers. It is depending on the Lord in prayer. He says, pray so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. What is he talking about here? Take your hand. Keep your hand here. Flip back to chapter 1. And look at verse 19. This is the mystery that he's talking about. Chapter 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That is Jesus. that needs to be proclaimed, that Christ died for your sins and he rose again. And it's a mystery until you share it and the Holy Spirit opens up people's hearts. It's a mystery because people don't come to the logical conclusion that God must have must send his son to pay for their sins on the cross and rise again, and that trusting in him alone will give them eternal life and forgiveness of sins, people will never come to that conclusion. That will never be found by lifting up rocks, searching through creation, just reading casual books out in history. You will never find that. It's a mystery because it's a plan of God revealed in time, and he established us as believers in him to share the good news. Now the text says, pray that so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And here Paul wanted the church in Colossae to know that evangelizing or sharing what Christ has done at times may not be popular, but at times it may be outright very difficult. So if you look at the text, we're not supposed to stop sharing because things get hard, like being in chains. But do you think he's actually, Paul's actually saying, um, I'm, I'm put in chains because I have the testimony about Jesus... Or is he saying, I'm in chains so that I will testify about Jesus? Which one do you think it is? Look at the text there. So he's saying is, I got put here because something I said. Or is he saying, I got put here so I will say something? Both. We know that he was tossed in jail. He was rounded up because of his testimony about the Lord Jesus. We know that. But here in the text, he's praying that, we're going to see this, praying that the mystery of Christ will be proclaimed for which he's in chains. And we know he was locked up because of that message. But wouldn't you think he would tend to want to leave that out if he's trying to convince a church to talk about the Lord? Hey guys, I want you to talk about the Lord. I'm in a prison cell for doing it, but I want you to do it. I really do believe he shared this for two reasons. The first one is this. Jesus promised that as we follow him in our Christian life, it will cost us. Don't be surprised. But I want you to think back in the life of Paul. In Acts chapter 8, Paul, before he became a believer in Christ, was named Saul, says he was breathing murderous threats to the church he was running from town to town chasing people down putting them in prison in chains and what did the church do they ran for their lives and as they ran for their lives what did they do yeah so as they ran for their lives their volume increased their resolve strengthened and they shared the good news of Jesus wherever they went paul who was Saul, knew firsthand that the pain and suffering that he brought the church, God used to explode the church. He knew it firsthand. So we pray for the Lord to open the door. But point number three, you guys can see it in the outline. We pray to proclaim it clearly. Now, this is the Apostle Paul asking this. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Making it clear or making it known or making it plain or share openly. Now, when we start sharing, to be honest with you, most of us get in our head. I'm not really prepared. What if somebody asks me a question I don't know? What if I don't have the relational margin to be able to talk about spiritual things? What if I share the gospel so simply they just don't get it? And let's just face the fact there are times that I have shared the gospel at a coffee shop with somebody, and it's like the music gets turned up. The next door next table here gets more obnoxious. Babies start crying. I'm not kidding you. It's like every time I share the gospel, there seems to be some type of spiritual battle that it, there's just distractions. Never mind my heart beating that I can feel. There's just so many distractions. There are hundreds of them. That's why we pray. And so, friends, he says, pray that the gospel will be presented clearly. Pray to proclaim it clearly. And we pray so that when it's clear, we can thank the Lord. We can't just say, well, good good deal that that training worked. No. We pray that it's clear, and when it is, we thank the Lord. Now, It is the Lord who helps us make it clear. So the next time you share and it's not clear, don't ask the question, what kind of training do I need to do? Ask the question, did I pray? Did I ask the Lord to help make it clear? Now, Paul knew that the threat of chains could definitely cloud his message. If You got thrown in the cell and you didn't know if you were going to live Would it affect what you say? Just saying. So he uses the phrase should. And I find that peculiar because in week number two, when Sid talked about the gospel, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Who wrote 1 Corinthians 15? Paul. Paul knows the gospel. He knows it super clearly. But he also knows circumstances can actually work against us and keeping it clear. So what do you do when you devote yourself to the priorities of God? You're being prayerful, you're watchful, you're thankful, you're praying the Lord opens the door and you're praying that the gospel is clear. What do you do when nothing happens? You You keep praying. Well, as you're praying, you need to realize a few things. Point number four. Your evangelism is tied to your actions. Verse five, it says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Being wise here in the text in how you act with outsiders is considering how your actions affect non believers, it's having expertise in how you act. It's spiritually behaving yourself so that you don't negatively impact unbelievers. In fact, as you process this and try to apply wisdom, there are times in our actions that we might be just, we might be right, but are we wise? Those are two different things at times. And how would you know if you're wise? According to the text here, Paul is saying that wisdom is making the most of every opportunity. Opportunity for what? To proclaim the mystery of Christ. So biblical wisdom in the way we act is asking this question, does this action support and promote me sharing the mystery of Christ with this person who doesn't know Jesus? We have to understand that sometimes the biggest clouding factor in our evangelism is what we do. Here's another thing. We have to understand that the biggest clouding factor in our evangelism can be what other Christians do. Let me say it this way. My choices affect my ability to tell what the Lord has done. But your choices affect my ability to share what the Lord has done. You see, as Americans, we have this very, 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 very independent kind of Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island, right? We have this idea that we are somehow an independent doing our own thing, blazing our own trail. Paul is asking us to apply wisdom in the way we act because the way we act has a profound impact on our testimony, but it actually has a profound impact on other people's testimony. So consider this an invitation to grow up spiritually and ask these questions. If I do this, will it affect my testimony of what Jesus has done for me? You might be right, but will it affect it? But I'm going to invite you to another level of maturity. If I do this, will it affect my brothers and sisters who are trying to testify about what the Lord has done? That's what Paul's talking about, wisdom when it comes to making the most of every opportunity. Now, I'm sure you're tired of talking about it, but I'm just going to embrace the awkward because that's my job. Uh, COVID was a very sad time. For us as pastors, um, it's a pretty dark season from our perspective um, on the behaving of our church. Um, there were so many in our church family that were concerned about uh, their rights or controlling others or uh, defending their personal rights or, quite frankly, even staying healthy. That all thoughts about being wise. And the way we act towards outsiders went out the window. It wasn't even on the table for so many of us. And evangelism is not just saying the right things. It's actually understanding that in our interactions and how we make our choices, it profoundly impacts our testimony. So in each and every interaction with the world, you need to be asking ourselves, what is the most loving thing that I can do that will positively impact this unbeliever to know Christ as their Savior? That's the spiritual wisdom that he's calling us to. Be wise in the way you behave, making the most of every opportunity. Just because you're right doesn't mean you have the freedom spiritually. So, Paul calls his chains an opportunity. Do you see unbelievers in your life as opportunities, or do you see them as a pain? I've had this question come up probably 10 or 12 times. Are we better or stronger spiritually because of the last few years? I wrote this down. This was in my office. I was journaling about this. I would say it depends on whether or not we are seeking to make the most of every opportunity or if we've gotten more concerned with our own thoughts and rights. It's quiet in here. I'm going to say it again. Are we better and stronger spiritually because of the last few years? I would say it depends on whether or not we are seeking to make the most of every opportunity for the gospel or if we've just gotten more concerned with our own individual rights. So not only what you do has a profound impact on evangelism, we're going to see in our final point here is what you say has a huge impact. Point number five, evangelism is what you say. Look at verse six. Let your conversation be always full of grace. The phrase always there is there so that we understand that there's no room for going on vacation with what you say. And because we are a family, when what we say hurts others, we do receive God's grace, but we go to others to seek forgiveness. Remember we talked about we're a family? We do mess up. We extend grace. But some of us in the room have caused a lot of hurt by going on vacation, by considering of what we say. And I'd encourage you to let the always be a goal in all of your life. I'd encourage you, if over the last couple years, if there was a long season where the always was never, or the always was rare, I assume you've got a trail of people that you've hurt in the process. When we've received grace, we extend it. And I'd invite you guys to seek out people this week of people that you've hurt through not having your conversation always full of grace. Now, the phrase full of grace means benefit or favor or gift, meaning when I talk, it's a gift to you. Ephesians 4 says, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. It's speech that is full of grace or full of benefit or full of gift. And in order for us to do this, we actually have to keep in mind the grace we receive from God, and then remember, every one of us in this room needs others extending that same grace to us. You know why we were told to have a speech that's full of grace? Because John said in John 1.14, we've beheld his glory, talking about Jesus, he's full of grace and truth. So what he's saying is when we talk, we should be talking Jesus. And when you bring up Jesus, it's hard, to not, it's hard to forget that you're dependent in need of him and the gift he provided for you. So he says our conversation shall always be full of grace and then seasoned with salt. Now, go to your you. cupboard at your house. You've got seasonings. My wife's Italian, so she's got lots of seasonings. I asked her this question. I want to ask you this question. If you opened up your cupboard and I said you have two seconds to decide one seasoning that you can take with you the rest of your life, the rest you can never have, what would you pick? Yeah. <laughs> Anya says salt right away. And so did I. And then she goes, but garlic's a close second. <laughs> right? And uh, <clears throat> I could pick salt and never regret it. No question about it. Pretty much, I go into Culver's if you, and then we, we get this family fries. You know, we just all kind of dip into the big box. They don't put salt in that anymore. You got to ask for it, friends. French fries without salt—they're not worth it. And I'm pretty good about seasoning things, but actually, Anya's better at seasoning. I'm the grill master, but she definitely is better at putting whatever she puts on it, and it tastes awesome. When it comes to seasoning, if you're somebody who works in the kitchen, you understand that it's crucial. It's intentional. You put certain flavors. And then things come alive in the brain when they taste those certain seasonings. Here Paul says our conversation should be seasoned with salt. Salt keeps you coming back. And when things are seasoned, they're done intentionally. And our conversations ought to be seasoned with grace Humility, intentional Jesus talk. And it's allowing people the space to be broken, working through their sin, and receiving the same grace that you received through Christ. Now, this intentionality doesn't happen by accident. It happens when you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. So he says here in the text, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You know Paul assumes that when you live this way people are going to ask it's not natural being gentle, humble and grace oriented is so countercultural he knew and assumed that people would say why are you that way? And so often we forgo being wise in the way we act gracious in our talk, seasoned with salt, and we go right into the frustration and resentment with the world. And the result is, they never come asking our hope. So I want to encourage you with this. It is a wonderful privilege to be considered salt when it comes to flavoring. I want to encourage you as you think about this whole sharing the gospel, we have the privilege of being salt in our world. We have the privilege of opening our mouths and sharing the good news of Jesus. Because we know that ultimately, you've got to talk about the Lord, right? And we know ultimately you have to share the good news of Christ and what he's done for you. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we looked at our text today that sharing the gospel, evangelizing, yes, we need to share, but oftentimes it's a bit more uh, nuanced than that. And too often we focus on the mechanical, mechanics of tools or methods or the exact things to say. But I want to encourage you with a certain picture today. We encourage you with light. You know, since the beginning of time, people have been using light as a tool to travel, to work, and for the most basic functions of life. Fire has served as the nighttime light for thousands of years until the invention of electricity, which ramped up light's intensity, which ramped up society's dependence upon light. We now have battery flashlights that cost hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars because they're literally thousands of lumens. We, as a society, value light. If you live out in the country, it secures your footing. Um, Anya and I were driving back from Berlin from a football game. We were coming out of and head to the Kettle Moraine, and I was aware of how much light keeps us on the road. In the city, it's a matter of life and death. Crime does not like light. Sin does not like light. Surgeons need light to do surgery. I seem to need it more every day to read. With light, many amazing things happen, and without it, society comes to a screeching halt. The Old Testament tabernacle, which was instituted when the people of Israel left Egypt, and God wanted to have his presence with the people. And they established a tent of meeting, or tabernacle, where God's presence would dwell. That tabernacle had various layers or partitions or rooms that ultimately led to the very presence of God. There were no windows, no natural light to guide the way for the priest. God gave very clear instructions to that priest that their job was to keep the lamp burning at all times, every day, all day, to guide the way to the presence of God. Now, without that light, the priest would be unable to navigate the tabernacle. And I believe these are this is what John the disciple had in mind as he penned these words. And as I close out this time, I'm going to read you a couple different passages as you consider this light and again, I want this to burn in your mind as you guys go out today. It says this. Now, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, or an evangelist, to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light, that is, Jesus that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said... He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So John the Baptist, or evangelist, was testifying about Jesus. Jesus, God's son, was the light who came into the world to show us the way back to a right relationship with the Father through him. And Jesus, the light, in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, laid out the groundwork for which Paul, in our passage today, spoke. When he says, always let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Remember back to your cabinet where I said, pick one seasoning. And you quickly said salt. You hardly think about living without it. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Again. It's no longer good, good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Friends, when it comes to being a flavoring in our world, we have the wonderful privilege of being that salt to the world around us. He also laid the groundwork for being light. Though I read to you out of John, Jesus being the light, he then says, gives light to everyone. He says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and they put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Notice where your eyes are drawn this morning. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Peter picked up on this, friends. He says, live such good lives, uh, In sight of the pagans or unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven when he visits us. Jesus realized that how we lived had a profound impact, real implications on our evangelism, our testimony telling others. And the way I live serves as a light to a lost world. And just as that candlestick in the tabernacle for the priest ushered them into the presence of God, you too are God's plan A, B, C, D, and all the way down the alphabet. And just as John the Baptist came into the world to prepare the way and witness for Christ, you and I have one singular purpose while our heart is beating— Friends, we are here to glorify God and bring the lost world to the light of Jesus' death and resurrection by the way we live. Yes, one must believe that Christ died and rose again for their sins, to be a child of God, but someone has to tell them. Somebody told you. That is evangelism. And as we let our light so shine before men, in reflection to the passage we just read, let's devote ourselves to prayer, watching the horizon, scanning it for what God's doing with gratitude. Let's pray the Lord opens a door for the message and keep our eyes open for those doors. Let's pray that God helps us be clear in our message that Jesus died and he rose again for our sins. And friends, let's step in and be wise in the what we do making the most of every opportunity. Let's season what we say with salt, that we might be full of grace so that people will want the grace that's through Christ. And let's see every interaction with unbelievers as an opportunity to let our light shine, pointing to Christ. That's where evangelism starts. So in closing, you guys can see that evangelism defined in your bulletin, It's when we prayerfully depend on God to use our actions and our speech to help people trust in Christ as their Savior. That translates into mothers with stay-at-home kids. That translates to people in all stages of life. No matter where you're at, no matter where God has you, you can prayerfully depend on God to use your actions and your speech to help people trust in Christ as Savior. I encourage you, don't let evangelism, evangelism intimidate you. I encourage you to bear or carry that weight that you are intended to be light in the world and that those around you who need the good news of Jesus need your light pointing to the Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for Your word and how it helps us understand your heart. Lord, we do realize that you have called us to testify or to share what you've done in our lives through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to not shoulder a burden, but help us to joyfully declare what you've done in our lives. Lord, help us to connect the dots, help us to understand that evangelism is so dependent upon praying and relying on you. It's a work that you do, Lord. Help us take the pressure off. I pray today that you would help us to assess what we do and what we say and how it impacts our testimony about you. Help us to course correct by your power. Lord, today I pray that if some of our church family here have hurt others by what they've said, would you give them the strength to go seek reconciliation, to go seek forgiveness, that we be always seasoned with salt, that we be always full of grace. It's your power that helps us, Lord, so we trust in you. Help us to joyfully testify about what you've done and be a church that carries the weight of being light, to a world that needs you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.